welcome to the MWC podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, hey, so let me just let me just tell you. Growing up, I w- I was known as like. The, the king of schmoozing. Does anybody know what schmoozing is? It's, it's probably not a popular word. I looked it up. It's in the dictionary, actually. It's probably one of those that every year they just like throw in there because everyone's used it. Uh, but schmoozing is this like this act of, of buttering someone up, of, of kissing up, brown nosing, this, this idea, this concept uh, of, of trying to manipulate someone in order to get something in return, right? Like, like you get really close to them and, and you kind of like tell them what they want to hear when you make, so that when you make a request, you can manipulate them to like believe it in you or, or or, or giving you something. It's a horrible, dangerous art, but you're already judging me. You're like, man, I can't believe our pastor was a schmoozer. I'm not a schmoozer now, but growing up, I was, okay? Uh, I didn't know any better. Um, so so I, would, I would do this all of the time, like to my parents, you know, like, hey, mom, you're, you're looking great today. Can I get like 10 bucks or something? Like, you know, or, or I, I'd especially do it to my teachers before parent-teacher conferences because I was that kid and I was terrified of parent-teacher conferences because my dad had a belt that he hanged on his, on his, on his closet and, he, and I knew if like there was a bad remark or a bad response from like a teacher, like that, that was, that was going to be my present, right? Um, a horrible present. Like what a horrible gift giver my dad was. That wasn't a spiritual gifting. Uh, his love language wasn't giving gifts because that was a horrible gift. Uh, but I remember, so before parent-teacher conferences, I'd go to my teachers, man, Mrs. Ramos, you, you, you are brilliant. Did you go to Harvard? Like you're just, I, I'm so inspired when I walk out of your classes. I just want to like tell the world about everything you're telling me. You're such an incredible teacher. I was a schmoozer, okay? Um, I, I, the, the cops that were friends with my families, I'd behave super well in front of them and then I'd go away and I'd be a horrible person. So, so I, was, I was literally known as, as a schmoozer. But there was one person that I schmoozed the most, one person that I, that I, I sucked up to the most. And you're like, man, Pastor Steve, you're a horrible person. Listen, I did this out of survival, okay? Man, when you're, from the, you're, when you're from the hard streets of South Chicago, you do anything to survive, all right? So this was a survival tactic. You're over there judging me like, man, he's horrible. But I was doing it to survive. Every day after school, I would walk to this corner store to feed myself, okay? I'd walk to this corner store right there. Uh, that's actually the corner. That's actually where I grew up. I mean, I love that place. Not really. You see that guy over there cleaning? He's only doing it because the Google car is walking by. He's like, oh, I better make sure like I'm, I'm working really hard, making sure my property looks good. You liar. <laughs> Don't lie to us, right? So, um, so yeah, that, that's the corner of uh, Commercial and 97th Street. I grew up on 97th and Escanaba, about two blocks away from that. Uh, and that's South Chicago. Uh, you can tell by all of the bars on the windows and doors because people riot and loot 24-7. Um, just kidding, they don't. But that corner store right there is called uh, Lopez Liquors. And, and the Lopez family, they actually owned the store right next to it, which was called La Feria. And the owner was uh, Senora Lopez. She was an incredible lady. Um, I'm just schmoozing. She wasn't. She was actually, I'm just kidding. She was good. She was great. She was, she was a great lady. I'd go to her all of the time after school. I'd walk, I'd walk over to her store. It was about two blocks away from my house and two blocks from school. I'd stop there afterwards. And I'm hungry, right? I'd be like, Senora Lopez, you... Man, this is a wonderful establishment. You work so hard. Can I have a bag of chips? Right? Or, or like, man, Senora Lopez, you, have, you been, have you been on the app? You are, you are looking great. Like, seriously, has anyone told you that lately? You are just looking so trim and so slim. Can I get a soda? 
can I get a pop, right? Like just, just schmoozing to get something that, that I want. And, and it's dangerous. You know, Proverbs is very clear. Proverbs 29, verse five, it says, anybody who flatters with their lips sets a trap for their feet. And, and, and I wasn't a Christian back then. So I, I did this thinking that I was always looking out for myself, but eventually uh, I set a trap for my feet. I set a net for my feet that I tangled over and fell because one day Senora Lopez got the idea that I was schmoozing her. And she's like, you know what? It's time for him. It's time for me to cash in for all those times that I've helped him out and I've done something for him when he's only been trying to manipulate me. So he, she came to me one day and she's like, how would you like to take my daughter to the prom? And I'm like, no! <laughs> Do you know your daughter? No! <laughs> you don't know. She wasn't ready, right? Like she, she had no idea. And I took her daughter to prom and she was a great, she was a nice, a nice girl, but she wasn't my pick for prom and, and I ended up going and doing it. But, but he, here's the thing, the reason why I bring up this story, the reason why I'm trying to talk to us about schmoozing and you're over there judging me for being a schmoozer, I'm not a schmoozer anymore, but, but here's the thing, we all do it, especially to God. Our prayer lives are like this, Lord, I, I've, been, I've been so good. I've been behaving so well, Jesus, how about you answer some of these prayers, some of these wants that I have? God, I, I've been on my best behavior. And, and, and listen, you, you got you to gotta leverage some of that. Like, it's time to pay up, God. I followed all the commandments. Like, it's, it's time to pay up, God. Can, can you please move on my behalf? If you think that by your good behavior or, or by your sacrificing for God that, that he now owes you one, you're completely mistaken. We can't schmooze God. It's impossible. So, so when we're in this series that we are called The Perfect Prayer, where we're talking about how to, to pray, when we're looking at the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching his people how to, how to pray, he's not teaching us how to butter God up in order to get what we want, right? Why, why are we talking about this? Because I believe if we're not careful, some of us would assume that the portions of Scripture that we've already read in the past two weeks are, are almost attempts for us to schmooze God into kind of leveraging all that we are and all that we've been so that he could answer some of our requests. We're in this series called The Perfect Prayer, and we've, we've kind of been building this pyramid, right? We, 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 we've seen that this passage in Scripture is only used in, in two, part, two parts. It's in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Jesus is off praying. When he comes back to, from praying, one of his disciples are like, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And then he gives them this prayer, right? He teaches them this. That, that's in Luke's gospel. But in Matthew's gospel, on a completely different opportunity or moment, Jesus is, is preaching and teaching this series called the Sermon on the Mount. It's from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. And he's getting to the portion where he says, this is how you should pray, right? And we've been looking at this. But here's something that I've, I've kind of fell in love with, with just this series, and I don't know if we'll ever do this again after this series, but, but I, I love this, because if, if this is something that Jesus is telling us how we must pray or how we must live, because how many of you know prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian? If you aren't praying, you are missing out on everything God has for you. It, it's, it's communication. It's an opportunity for us to humble ourselves and bring requests to him, yes, but it's also an opportunity to hear from him and to be in relationship with him. So if you don't have an active prayer life, man, you are missing out. So when Jesus says this then is how you should pray, this is something we should probably honor and take to the bank, right? This is something that we should just allow our minds to completely delve into. So last week, I had us do something. I had us stand when reading this passage. Can we do that again? 
just as a sign of honor, a sign of saying, you know what, Lord, we, we are actively posturing ourselves to the reading of your word. Uh, we we want to hear. So if, if you are able, would you stand with us? And if, you're, if you can't, that's, that's more than okay. I know it's the posture of the heart that the Lord is looking at right now. But it's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. Let's read that together. It says this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You could have a seat. You're like, man, Pastor Steve, you're really Catholic. I am, right? I just, I just turned you guys, you guys are all part of the Catholic church now, welcome. This model that Jesus gives us is not a formula, okay? Oftentimes we'll read this and, and we'll just say, hey, if I just memorize this, then I'm okay, then I'm, then I'm golden. But the reality is Jesus isn't giving us a formula, he's giving us a model. He's saying this then is how you should pray. So, so everything that I'm saying here is not what you should just regurgitate and say again, but, but, but what I'm saying here is, is, a, is a model for how you should allow your prayers to look like. If Jesus... Like, does anybody know of anybody who prayed better than Jesus? Like, is there anybody who prayed better than Jesus? So if Jesus is saying, this then is how you should pray, you you should be taking notes. It's kind of like a millionaire coming and saying, hey, I'm a self-made man. You want to learn how to make a million bucks? And you're like, nah, I'll listen to the bum on the corner. No, you're going to pull out your everything and just start writing. Okay, start this, day one, day two, right? If Jesus is saying, if you want an active relationship with God, if you want the type of relationship, the type of intimacy that I had with the Father, and listen, it's possible because Jesus even said, my prayer is that, remember on in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying in the garden, he says this when he's praying over his disciples, he's saying, Father, I pray that they are one as you and I are one. Father, I pray that, that they are, submit themselves to you the way I submit myself to you. So it is possible. So if Jesus is saying, this then is how you should pray, we should be taking notes. And, and I've kind of allowed, I've illustrated this like pretty simply for us, a, a, a what I call the perfect prayer pyramid. Man, I should just patent this, right? The perfect prayer pyramid. And it, it's just, it's just the, the, the model that Jesus gives us. So the first week we looked at what is called uh, that, that foundation that we built. It's where he says, our father in heaven. That's the first slab. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is heaven. That, that, that second part, I'm sorry, I just gave up the second part. So the first one is our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The second one is where he talks about the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pause there. Because both of those two slabs, both of those two foundations are critical. Note that nowhere in those two requests is Jesus requiring or, or asking of us or, or, or implying or suggesting that we should go into our needs. The first thing that he is saying to do is focus yourself on the Father. To start off with, oh, Father. Remember we talked about how that's not a, just a, a, a capital F term, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a term of intimacy 
how Jesus was, was suggesting that when we go to him, we should go as, as a child goes to the father. Remember we talked about Abba, Father, what that means, that intimacy. Jesus is, is giving us an invitation to have this level of closeness with our God. That is the most critical thing you can do when you start off your prayer is recognize that he wants me here. He's not trying to keep me at an arm's length. He's not trying to push me away. He wants me to draw near. As we draw near to him, he draws near to us. God will never say he doesn't have time for you. So he's saying when you start off your prayer, start off with the realization that he wants you near him. Our Father in heaven, not as a reminder that he's far off and distant and away from us, but but that when we say he's in heaven, we are literally saying, Lord, you reign supreme over all creation. Heaven is your throne room. So if we remember that our Father, our loving, intimate Father is sitting on the throne, it means he is sovereign over everything, every situation, every scare, every fear, every addiction, every sin, everything that we have, everything that we muster, every anxiety, every worry, Jesus reigns supreme. So we start off with that realization, oh, Father, who reigns supreme, holy is your name. Oh, God, you are are so holy and magnificent. And although you are an intimate, close Father, you also deserve to be revered. It's this perfect paradox that I can't even comprehend. Lord, you want me to draw near, but but I can't even approach you because of your holiness, but but you still want me to come. God, it's just mind-blowing. Like, literally, if you watched Inception and your mind was blown afterwards, try to comprehend the holiness and the intimacy that God requires or asks of us, and your mind's going to be blown times 10. It's like a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream. It's crazy, right? right? So he builds this foundation, and then he goes to your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is my favorite. Like, if I had a favorite part of this prayer, it's that, because we still aren't even talking about ourselves. This is a sign of complete worship and praise, recognizing that he is a king. He has a kingdom, and one day, he didn't just build the earth and then, it, and then sin came over, it and he's like, yeah, hey, I'm done with it. I'll start in this other universe. No, he said, I'm building a kingdom, and although I was forced out of my own throne as we sin did, I will come back and restore my kingdom. We talked about that last week, and oh my goodness, if you were here, how powerful did the Lord move that day? People were delivered. I'm telling you, I mean, we, we don't even understand the good things God was doing. Addictions were broken that day. The people that I counseled after week, I'm telling you, long, stronghold Long strongholds and vices were broken that day. People that I've counseled last week, it's just the Lord just, man, when we align ourselves with the, with, with the things of God, when we allow our wills to align with God's will, as opposed to saying, Lord, just come alongside me and be my support. God's like, get out of here. Listen, you come alongside me and be, let me, and, and be my support. Pray my will. Pray my kingdom come. Pray my will be done on my earth, as it is in my heaven. Pray those prayers, align yourself to me. And when we do that, God moves prayerfully. You wanna know why? Because when we pray like that, we are no longer the center of the universe. And we're allowing the actual center of the universe to take his place. And we step aside and say, God, whatever your will is, may it be done. Everything, it, it, when we pray like that, it just diminishes who we are. And not in a, not an attempt to just like kick us by the wayside and no, no longer think about us again, but, but it enables us to just say, God, everything else is just meaningless. When you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know what happens? When people attack you personally, when people say things about you, when you don't get that promotion, when you, when you feel ashamed, when you, when you feel discouraged by the things other people are saying about you, they just begin to roll right off. 
Because you recognize that you belong to a king who owns a kingdom and he will one day reestablish it here on earth and you're just waiting for that time. Your heart is just building up encouragement and strength and what people say just falls by the wayside. You no longer have to have insecurities because you belong to the one who's the most secure, God. So, So Jesus is saying, listen, this perfect prayer pyramid start off with praise, worship, understanding of who he is and then... And then you get to this part, this verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. This is mind-blowing, going from talking about how great God is and how holy he is and how he deserves to be revered and how he's a king and he has a kingdom and one day he will restore it here on earth and and we'll have a new heavens and new earth. Like, Like we're praying all these huge, grandiose and we're making all these huge statements and then we get to this, this part where it says, give us today our daily bread. It, it, it's, it's almost, it, it makes no sense, right? Did you know that the early church fathers struggled with this notion more than anything else in all of the New Testament? In fact, there, there is a word in this phrase, in this verse, give us today our daily bread, which has only been used in the Lord's Prayer, in the, in the ancient Greek, and nowhere else nowhere else in scripture, nowhere else in any ancient Greek manuscript. In fact, if, if, if you look at what Kenneth E. Bailey, he's, a, he's some scholar, he was writing about origin. He said this, the trouble is that the, this particular word, which is daily, uh, which is the Greek word episios, uh, this particular word appears nowhere in the Greek language. Origen, a famous Greek scholar of the early third century, wrote that he did not find this word in use among the Greeks, nor was it used by private individuals. It must have been created by the evangelist. He's speaking of Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. That word, daily, give us today our daily bread, has stumped everyone. They, they, they tried finding it in other ancient manuscripts and personal letters and, 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 and creeds and writings, and they can't find it. It's, it's a word that Matthew the evangelist just came up with because he couldn't describe the kind of sufficiency or the kind of provision that Jesus gives us, he, so he made up a word. And, and they tried, Jerome, he's, he's a theolo- he was a theologian. He was the one who was responsible for translating the, the New Testament and the Old Testament from the original Hebrew and Greek to, to the Latin language. And then we've translated it from Latin to English. Or, and now we go back to the Hebrew and Greek. But uh, Jerome was the first person who was tasked with translating the, the scriptures to Latin, which is the language that they spoke in the church in that day. And when Jerome got to this part, he had no idea what word to use for epicesios. So, so he took the word and he said, you know what, the reality is, is there are one of three or, or maybe two of three possible ways to translate this word. And he said this, it could either be translated to give us this day today's bread. It could be give us today tomorrow's bread. Or the third one is, and he combines both today and tomorrow, and he says, give us today our super substantial bread. 
And you're just like, what does that even mean? Well, he took the word epicesios. He, he broke it up and the prefix is epi, which can be super, and uh, the other one, substantial. So he just said, maybe it just, it just is like this, this huge meal that he's gonna give us. Like it's today's bread and it's tomorrow's bread and it's, it's this ever-fulfilling bread. And you know what happened? He, he, he struggled with this notion because he overthought the passage. Because Jerome and Origen and all these early church fathers were like, there is no way Jesus could dumb down the prayer that he's giving us. I mean, I mean, just look at, at, at this structure that he's building. He, building. He's first talking about the kingdom, and he's talking about the holiness of God. He's talking about um, uh, that, that uh, may your will be done. He's, he's bringing up all these huge statements, and, and for him to go from, from those giant statements to just give us today our daily bread, it, it's, almost like a, it's almost like, why? That's, that's too small of an ask. You're going from, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And by the way, can you give me a sandwich? Like, it, it, just, it just makes no sense why you would pray this way. So, so the early church fathers just overthought this, and they're like, it, it can't be that. It just, it just can't be that simple. Have you ever had a friend who overthought everything? Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you overthink everything. You're walking through the mall and someone says, hey, how are you? And you're like, you're a jerk. Like, they were asking how you're doing. I promise they had no other intention. They just, they were sincerely concerned with your welfare and being, right? Like, like you're like, oh, you're a jerk, right? I had a friend like that in college. Um, I had, uh, I, was, I was socialized as a young person and uh, my, a lot of my friends weren't socialized at all. Like they were just hidden away in a closet their whole life and then they came to college and they were expected to be regular beings of society and they couldn't, they couldn't handle it. Uh, my one friend in particular, my roommate, I love him. We're still good friends to this day. I remember there was a time, <laughs> gosh, I'm thinking about it. I remember there was a time where we were just walking through the halls in school in college, and uh, there was this, this lady or this girl who was also one of our classmates. She looks at us, and she's like, oh, hey, guys. And my friend just, like, gets really nervous all of a sudden. He's like, hey. And then we keep walking, and he's really quiet. I'm like, dude, what, what's, what's going on? He's like, dude, I think she wants to get married. And I'm like, no, man. No, you're overthinking this. She doesn't want to get married. She was just saying hi. Like, I, I promise you, don't overthink this. The early church fathers completely overthought this prayer. They're like, there is no way Jesus could be building this huge foundation. And for us to just say, give us today our daily bread? Jesus, give, give us the sandwich that we need for today. It just, it makes no sense that, that, that they would ask for this. But here's the thing. Jesus did mean just that. He literally was implying Give us today our daily bread. Jesus, Father, give me the sustenance that I need for right now. Because do you want you want to know something? The creator of the cosmos, the same God, if you ever read Job 38, it's it's a beautiful passage in scripture where, where Job just finishes complaining against God, bringing up all these complaints against him, and, and people are bringing him bad advice. His three friends are just telling him horrible advice. His wife even said, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, let your life is meaningless, this and that, and, and, and he's complaining against God, and then finally in Job 38, if you ever read Job, just read, I mean, read the whole book, but read that chapter, because finally God responds to Joseph, and, or to Job, and says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, ha have you seen the storehouses of snow? 
Job, did you see where, where I store all of the hail? Job, Job, were you there when, when, when I literally said to the shores and to the seas that you should go here and no further? Were you there when I placed the stars in the sky? Were you there when, when, when I literally created everything? And, and even if you look at the universe now, it's continuing to expand. God's creation is still in, in, in process. We still see it happening to this day. Astronomers are just like scratching their minds. Like, they're like, wait, if it's expanding, that there was a point of inception, there means that means something must have taken place. Like That means there was nothing, and then something happened. How is that logical? It makes no sense, but it does make sense because God said it, and, and there it was. All of these things, Job is, is like just sitting there like, oh my goodness, even God makes this joke. He says, he says, gird yourself, gird your loins like a man, right? Like it's a horrible thing to say, but God said it's a Job, and Job's like, all right. He's basically saying, stand there like a man and listen to me. Were you there when I created the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I did this, when I did that, when I did this, when I did that? And, and, and Job it has to come to this realization that I'm just a man, that I don't have the answers figured out. It takes a lot of humility to do that. And that's why Jesus is kind of bringing this up in this, in this prayer, this model for us, that yes, you can talk about God being this huge creator and, and holy and a king and, and all of these things. And, and guess what? Even though he's all of that, he cares about your daily needs. Did you ever hear... Have you ever been told that, that someone doesn't have time for you? Maybe when you were a child and you wanted to be with a parent and they said, hey, listen, I, I don't have time right now, right? I, I gotta go. Or maybe, maybe, that, maybe that has happened to you. Maybe you've had to tell someone else that you didn't have time for them. I, I've had to do this for August, uh, our, our son, right? I come home for lunch, eat with Katie, but I don't have a lot of time. I got less than an hour. So I come home, eat lunch, and, and August is just like, da, da, right? He comes to the door. Oh, my goodness. It's just like, you never want to leave again. Like, you just want to be there forever. And he comes, and, and then as soon as I start putting on my jacket, it's just like waterworks. Like, he's like, no. And I'm like, August, I love you. And, and then he's like standing by the door, and he's just like holding on to Katie. And he's like, ah, da, da. And I'm like, August, and I say these words, and they hurt. And, I, and I'm not saying them maliciously. I say, August, I got to go. I, I, I don't have time. God has time. God has time. He's a father who is busy, right? He's a creator of the universe. Anything that was or has been, or is, he's created, and he's got time for us. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that when Jesus is giving us this model, that he sincerely wants us to go to a father and make requests for something as measly as our daily bread. How humbling is that? How humbling is that reality that, that he wants to be the one that provides our next meal. Some of us like go weeks without feeding our goldfish, right? Because we just like, oh, I forgot I had a goldfish. I better feed that thing. In the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty good comparison to, to us and to, to me and God, right? God, you, you got to make sure you got a lot on your plate. Like, if I can help, let me know, God, but we, we can't, right? He's got time. He doesn't forget. He wants us near him. That's why when we think that he doesn't want us near, it's just like you're slapping God in the face. When, you're, when you don't bring requests to God and you hold on to things, you're slapping God in the face because if he's making time for you, you, just, you should be like, yes, Lord. If you are making time, I want to spend time with you. But, but here's the thing. They couldn't handle this. They, they couldn't wrap their minds around this. So if we pray, give us today 
our daily bread, we got to ask a few questions to make sure that statement is true. The first question is this, does God care? If, if, we, if, he says, if Jesus says to pray, give us today our daily bread, or give us today tomorrow's bread, or give us today our substantial bread, uh, super substantial bread, if, if we can pray that, we have to ask the question, does, does God really care? Because here's the thing, I know not every one of us in this place are at the same level spiritually. I know some of us are unbelievers, some of us are, you know, part ways. We, maybe we're agnostic and you're just like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying there is no God, but, but I'm not fully convinced. And maybe you're just a mature Christian and, and you've been following Jesus for a long time. But there's a, a question we need to answer. Does God care? And I would respond, absolutely. Absolutely, he does. He's not what is known as a deist, has anyone ever heard the term deism or, or deist? It's, it's this philosophy or this belief that there is a creator, but he has made things in order and then he steps away and he just kind of spins the globe and everything is, is natural law and it just takes place, but he stands from a distance and observes and, he, and he'll poke in maybe once in a while, but he's not too intimate with his creation. He, he just stands off at a distance. That is known as deism. And guess what? It says that God is all-powerful but he's not all loving. Because if he was all loving, he would make sure certain things didn't happen. But because evil is in this earth and because bad things are happening, then that means that, that he's just all powerful and he just stands from a distance and therefore he's a deist. But here's the thing. There are so many logical errors with that philosophy. Philosophically speaking, if we can comprehend the evils of deism, if we can say that an all-good God who, who creates all creation and then steps from a distance is evil and is wrong, if we can comprehend that logically, it's only because the creator has imprinted it into our DNA. If we can come to the conclusion that that is wrong, it's because the creator who's made everything has told us that it's, it's wrong. Otherwise, we wouldn't come to that conclusion if there is a creator, right? And I'm talking to those who are agnostic who hold to deism right now. Atheism is another argument. We'll get to that some other time. And we actually have talked about that quite a bit. But philosophically speaking, it's a self-refuting argument. It just makes no logical sense. If we can come to that conclusion, it's been placed in our brain. And some of you are like, I'm done. I don't want to talk about this anymore. I don't believe it, Pastor. Let's, let's just go on, right? Philosophically speaking is wrong. But biblically speaking, it's illogical as well. If you read the Bible and hold some to be truth, you cannot believe in deism. Because all over scripture, we see that God is an intimate, active, loving, close, in proximity father. He cares about us. How do we know that? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and 26, also in verse 31 through 33, look what it says about the care that God has for us. He says, this is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? And then he gives this argument from natural law. He says, look at birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Note, Jesus is saying that we shouldn't store in barns. He isn't saying that we shouldn't work. He's just saying, he's trying to make an argument of, look, if God cares about the birds, you better believe he cares about you. If God cares about a sparrow that is worth a denarii, which would have been like a nickel, right? If he cares about that, 
how much more does he care about you? You see, because he's speaking to a Jewish audience who read the Old Testament and understand it to be true. And in the Old Testament, it says that God spoke everything into creation, right? It says in the beginning, God spoke and, and there was, right? In the beginning, God made these birds and animals and all these, he spoke them into creation. He just said, let there be and there was. Let there be plants and there was. Let there be birds and there was. Let there be this, let there be water and there was. All of these things, God spoke into existence, but there is only one creature of his creation that he was intimately involved with. It was humanity. It said God came and he took some of the ground and he, he brought it together, took some of the dust, right? he brought it together and, and, and he formed a man. But it wasn't enough for him to just be hands on. It said that he, he went down and breathed life into the nostrils and gave what it was called in the Hebrew, ruach, right? Which is like, like a spirit, right? It's where we get the Holy Spirit from. He breathed life. He breathed activity into this human, Adam. He was intimately involved. So if God, who cares about all the things that he spoke into creation, how much more involved or, or how much more care and love and compassion does he have for those that he was intimately involved with? Listen, I love my dog. He sleeps under my roof. I love him. I do. He's a great dog. His name's Corey. If anybody wants him, let me know. <laughs> Just kidding. Like, <laughs> I do love him. He's, he's a great dog. I mean, there's, we, we've had him since he was like six, like six weeks old, seriously. Uh, I remember having him in a basket and going to PetSmart with him inside of one of those baskets. Now he's like, how, much, how many, like 100-something pounds? He's fat. He's huge, his claws are huge, and he barks and he scares people off, so don't come robbing my house because you're gonna get your face bitten off. But I love my dog, I really do. But you know who I love more than my dog? And all you PETA people are gonna get upset with me, but I don't care, my son. Because I was intimately involved with, with him. He, he's of my blood, he's of my being. And if you're laughing and too immature, I'm sorry. But seriously, he's my son. God loves you more than this earth. We aren't pantheists. We don't think God's everywhere and he loves, he loves the trees as much as... No, he, he does love the trees because they're his, but he loves you more. God cares about you. So when we pray, give us today our daily bread, he cares about you. Pray that. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. If you get nothing else from this sermon, understand this. Like, just take this home. Memorize this. Get it tattooed on your arm. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that in due time he may exalt you. Verse 7. This is the one. The big shebang, right? Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That word anxiety in the Greek is, is, is a word. It's an illustration that literally means to choke yourself. Someone who like literally strangles themselves. Anything that causes you to choke yourself or strangle yourself. Fear, worry, addiction, sin, anything, any insecurity that you have. Jesus says, cast it on me. Give it to me. I want it. Why? Because I care about you. He's not saying, give me the things that you can't handle. You get? Because sometimes we think, oh, Lord, don't, don't worry about this. I, I got this. You know, this addiction, I got myself into it. I'm going to work hard to get myself out of it. This problem that I find myself in, this, this, this life-altering sin that I'm in, don't, don't worry about it, God. Here, let, let, me, let me just take care of it. Let me just go to a couple classes, and, and let me talk to some counselors, and those are good things, but, but don't worry about it, God. I, I got this. I'll handle this one. I'll call you when I need the big guns, all right? I understand you're powerful, but I'll call you later. God says everything. Cast 
all your anxiety on me because I care about you. Friends, that should bring excitement. He's got time for your needs. He's got time for your worries. He's got time for your anxiety. Cast all of your cares on me. God cares. So if, well, let's take it a step further. The first one is, does God care? Absolutely. Scripture tells us clearly, philosophically speaking, deism is, is self-refuting. It makes no sense. But the second step, if God cares, does he provide? Right? Because how many of us know that we care, some people care for their kids, they love their kids, but they can't provide for their kids. They can't, stay, they can't take it a step further, but, but can God take it a step further? He, does he care for us? Absolutely. Can he provide for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11, it says this, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Some of you have done this. I guess God's not home. I guess he's busy. He's probably in the shower. Listen. God, I need you. I need, I need you to move on my behalf, Lord. I'm not stopping because you told me not to. You said if I keep doing this, you'll show up. God says persistence, persistence, persistence. He gives even a parable about that. And he says, suppose one of you have a friend coming into town and you've got nothing to offer them. If you go to your neighbor's house and say, hey, neighbor, He's like, leave me alone, right? I just, I just, I just, yeah, I have one of those neighbors. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I, I don't have, I'm sure you have one of those neighbors, right? I don't have a neighbor like that. My neighbors are great. They really are. But they keep knocking, knocking and knocking. And then finally, this man, like I can just imagine on the second story of his house, he opens up his windows. He's like, what do you want already? Hey, man, can I have some flour? Yes, fine, fine. And he goes down, get angry, like sl- slamming cupboards and opening up things and slamming drawers. Here, take, take flour, get out of here. But he says this, that's kind of how God is, but he's not angry. He wants you to be persistent. Jesus isn't saying God is like some angry neighbor who's like, fine, you want something? I'll give it to you. No, he's saying, do you know how persistent you are and then you finally get something? God wants you to be just as persistent, but guess what? He wants to give you stuff. He wants you to come to him. But here's the thing. When God enables us to wait on him, you know what it does? It builds reliance. It builds trust. It builds strength. It's kind of like a workout, right? Like you couldn't put up a certain weight, then you work your way up there, and finally you can. You trust God more and more. So if, he's, if you're feeling like God is far from you and he's not responding to something that he should, man, God is just trying to grow you as a person because he loves you and healthy things grow. So God is trying to build you up. So keep on pressing in. Keep moving forward. So he continues on. Everyone who asks, fine. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Verse 9, he says this. You parents, and you may have heard this, but this is incredible for us to remind ourselves again. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Jesus got jokes because that's really funny, right? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people, me, with an inclination and a propensity towards sin. If you 
sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good, give good gifts to those who ask him? Christmas just happened, and I know everybody loves giving good gifts. Everybody loves it. God outgives everyone. In Luke, Jesus is recorded as saying the exact same thing, but he takes it a step further because the greatest gift we can have is the Holy Spirit. He says, if God gives good gifts, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You need to be praying and asking, Lord, may your Holy Spirit fill me. May I walk in the power of your Holy Spirit everywhere I go because I know the Holy Spirit's job is to point me to Jesus and to everything he has said, and I want that reminder on a daily basis because here, here, here's the reality. The things that I muster of my own understanding aren't strong enough, God. I need your word to permeate my life. I need your truth, not my understanding of truth. I need everything that you are, God, not my, my own my own logic, right? So Jesus is saying God does provide. And perhaps the most frequently used passage in the entire Old Testament, Psalm 23, maybe you've heard it, right? It was in a really cool rap song a long time ago, Coolio. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Psalm 23, verse one and two. Dude, I'm, I'm old school. Don't worry about me, okay? Psalm 23, verse one and two. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. There is nothing I lack in this illustration, David, or in this, in this passage that David, King David has, has written, he's literally fleeing from his kingdom, hiding in a cave. He's terrified. He's supposed to be king, but he's running from, from the kingship because there's people after his life. He's hiding in a cave, and instead of lamenting and complaining, and he's done a lot of that, but now he's, he's like encouraged, and he says, Lord, you are my shepherd. If you're my shepherd, I'm your sheep, and I lack nothing. Nothing do I lack. There is nothing that I need outside of you, God. Then he gets to the second verse, and we, we kind of just glaze right past, or blaze right past this because we think we understand what it means. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, in the Hebrew, they don't have capital words to uh, kind of talk about proper nouns, so you're left to just fill in the blanks if, if something's a literal location or just a, a, a description of something. But, but we now know through other studies and scholars that green pastures should be capitalized because it's a literal place. There is a place in Old Testament history known as the place of green pastures or, hey, green pastures or green acres is the place to be, right? Like there's a literal place known as green pastures. And David, being a shepherd boy, knew that place because he took his sheep there. But here's the thing about, about us and not reading scripture in context. We, are, we just allow ourselves to fit in the blanks and we don't actually realize or look to see what green pastures actually is. When you think of green pastures, what do you think of? Maybe you think of this. I got a picture here. Maybe you think of this. Cute little lammy. Cute little sheep, right? When I was studying for this sermon, I kept screaming from like my office to Katie. I'm like, Kate, I just want a sheep. These things are cute, right? Like they're just, they're super, I was watching videos of sheep and Kate's like, what's wrong with you? I'm, I'm studying, okay? Get out of my room. <laughs> Maybe you think of that when you think of green pastures, this lush, beautiful green land and, and a little sheep just sitting there, right? He's got food for days. He's, he's never going to be hungry again. If the shepherd just brought him there and, and left, he'd be fine for the rest of his life. 
Or maybe when you think of green pastures, you think of, of this, the Shire. Maybe you think of Lord of the Rings and you, and, and you think of just like this beautiful place where there's a bunch of grass everywhere. But when David was writing this poem, Psalm 23, he wasn't thinking of that. Remember I said green pastures is an actual place. You can look it up. It's, it's in the Najib Desert. And David would take his sheep and it actually looked something like this. Can we go to that next picture? Those are green pastures. A bunch of rocks and tufts of grass. And only the shepherd knew where that location was because a sheep wasn't smart enough. You remember, it was, a sheep was a domesticated animal. It was in complete reliance to its shepherd. So everywhere the shepherd went, the sheep had to follow or, the, or something bad would happen to the sheep. And, and, and when David is talking about, Lord, you lead me to green pastures, he's not saying, you bring me to this lush garden of Eden where I can just eat for days and I'll never need to depend on you again. No, what he's saying is, Lord, you are the one who takes me to green tuft of grass and then I'm hungry the next day and you bring me to the next one and I'm hungry for the next one and you bring me to the next one. When we pray, Lord, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our bread for today or give us our bread our, for, give us today our bread for tomorrow. What God wants you to pray is this. Lord, I'm completely dependent on, upon you. Listen, that prayer isn't a prayer for Lord, give me today what I need for the next coming week, what I need for a month, what I need for a year. It's Lord, give me today what I need today. When Jesus wrote this, when he wrote this, this, this prayer, he was talking to a bunch of people that literally lived paycheck to paycheck. You know how frequently they got paid? Every single day. They got paid a day's wages. So that payment was enough to put food on their plate for that day. If you got sick for two days even in, in antiquity or, or, an Old Test, or in New Testament time period, guess what? You were starving because you were sick. So the prayer of saying, God, give us today our daily bread, it's literally an everyday dependency. God, I know you want me here, and I need you to provide for my needs, Lord. I need you to take care of me. That's how he wants us. He wants us like that. He invites us to come like that. Sheep can't survive without a shepherd. We can't survive without Christ. We need him. For some of us, and, and I would be lying to you if I said that I didn't relapse into there or that I've never been there, but some of us say, God, give me today what I need for the rest of the week. And we say that when the only time we come into pre in his presence is if, when we're going to church or when we're coming to worship. So if, if, if the only time you come into the presence of God is when you come to church, and if you only come to church a couple times a month, guess what? You're starving spiritually. You are famished. You are on the brink of starvation and collapse. And some of you are nodding your head because you're like, Pastor Steve, I'm there. And listen, if you can't admit that in church, then, you, then, you, then you're, this is the only place we can admit that because we can pray for each other and lift each other up. I'm not saying this to shame anyone because I've been there. Where My only meal came from listening to somebody preach and regurgitate something that they've studied. You can't live that way. Although I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd, I'm not the great shepherd 
I'm an under shepherd. Jesus is your shepherd. Jesus is your shepherd. So we need to daily be in his presence and say, God, give me today the bread that I need today. Fill me, God. Sustain me in your presence. It's an invitation, but it's a promise that if we pray that he will feed us. There's a picture that I want to show you, and it's kind of funny, so don't, like, you can laugh, but, but don't get out of this place, ready? There is this sheep. In 2015, I read this article as I was studying for this passage. I, I looked up, can a sheep survive without, a, without its shepherd? And, and the answer is actually no. Uh, in fact, if, if a sheep wanders from the flock and if, if a shepherd can't find it within a couple, like, days, then he has to assume the worst, that, that, the, that the sheep is gone. Like he just got taken out by a predator because sheep are cute and they have no defense mechanism. In fact, the only defense they have is just cute and furry fur and that's not a good defense mechanism. So they'll just like, and, and they've been known to just like walk up to predators and just like give them hugs because they're sheep, right? Like, oh, look at that wolf. You're so cute, wolf. Look at those teeth, right? And they're done. They've, they're, they're silly animals. So if they leave the pack, if they leave the, the, the flock, if they leave the care of the shepherd, they are in trouble. Not only that, but, but sheep's fur, their coats, the domesticated sheep, it just grows and grows and grows and grows. It, it'll never stop growing. It has to be sheared. Look at this picture. This proved it all. This is Chris, this is Chris the sheep from Australia. Australia, down under, mate. In 2015, his shepherd found him. He was gone for six years. So his coat just grew and grew and grew and grew there's a, here's another picture of him just like wandering into the distance. Look how, look how dramatic he is. Such a model. That's all coat right there. The next one here. A bunch of kangaroos in the back. I'm like, man, look at that. Look at that coat. That's an expensive coat, Chris. Right? And then here's, here's a third picture. A before and after. That on the right is what a sheep looks like after six years of starvation and lack of health and care. He was blinded out of one eye. His skin was, was falling apart. And I believe that we've got some Chris the sheep in this place who are starving, who understand that God is holy, who understand that God is righteous, who understand that God is the king, but you don't go to him because you're just like, I don't think he has time for me. Or I'll go to him when I really need him. And Jesus would say to you and I this morning, come to me and ask me for your daily bread because I want to fulfill it. No more being Christ's sheep. Come to the shepherd. Let him sustain you. You can't survive without him. You need to follow his feet so that he can lead you to green pastures every single day. He doesn't abandon you in a green garden and take a step back and say, hey, I'll come back next week. He says, I must lead you. If I don't, you'll starve. Follow me. Your, your, your body is eating itself. You're having spiritual atrophy. You need me. Let me sustain you. I want to embolden you. I want to empower you. I want to use you for the kingdom of God. I, I, let me be your shepherd. It's an invitation. It's excitement. Every single one of us are invited to that. God's not busy for you. He doesn't keep you at home and, and comes back to visit once in a while. He loves you and cares for you. He is your shepherd. Shepherd.